Hello and welcome to Stories, the True and the Fictional. As you can tell from the slightly different style of music, this is going to be a slightly different style of episode. It's something we call Story Chat, where we sit down with an author, a filmmaker or any kind of storyteller really, and talk to them about their life and their work in a real fun and laid back way. So sit back, relax, unless you're going for a jog, then run faster. It's story time. Hello everyone, welcome to Stories the True and the Fictional. We have a very exciting guest for you today. His name is Simon Michael Pryor. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so why don't you just tell us a bit about, about, uh, bit about you and, and what you do and where you're from? Yeah, okay. Well, uh, I'm from I'm from England originally, as your listeners will probably be able to tell. Um, I write uh, travel humour. Um, I write about experiences I've had uh, travelling around the world. I enjoy travel a lot. I've visited about 50 countries. I've lived in about three of them. Yep, three definitely. <laughs> and uh, and and yeah, um, just uh, just loving enjoying life, mate. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting that you write travel humor over the last couple of years. Like, um, you make is it your plan to make people jealous, or <laughs> <laughs> no? So, I think every writer has found that um, COVID has, in many ways, given them uh, a, a way of being able to write more, giving them more time to be able to do those sort of things. We've been in various stages of lockdowns and having to work from home and all that sort of stuff so it's actually given us more time and i think a hell of a lot of books have been published during covid that might not have been done otherwise oh that's de- definitely the case yeah um yeah the last few authors we've spoken to have said pretty much the same thing one had <laughs> written two books in covid and you know covid's yeah. kind of giving you guys the chance to to you know to get your works out there yeah, yeah absolutely Excellent. All right. Well, we might break into some icebreakers. Let's do it. We do this with all of our, all of our guests. It's five questions. And um, look, I normally take the first one, so we'll mix it up. Why don't you take the first one, okay. Jamie? Well, Simon, um, if you could get rid of one thing in the world, what would it be? Yeah, uh, if I could get rid of one thing in the world, it would probably be Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir <laughs> is, is probably the most overrated, transparent excuse for a red wine in the whole world. Give me a good <laughs> solid Shiraz or Cabernet any day. And, and overcooked steak, actually, while we're at it. Get rid of overcooked steak. That's, uh, that's just a terrible aberration. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Great answer. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, question number two, what's something that's on your bucket list, Simon? Look, with me, it's got to be travel. Um, I'm, a, I'm a massive island ophile. There's a new word for you. Um, particularly teeny tiny countries. I, I'd, I'd love to go and visit even tinier countries than I've been to already. Uh, places like Pitcairn Island or St. Helena or Tristan da Cunha. Or, uh, but I also, I love America and I love Americans. Um, so probably the top item on my bucket list is to spend some time in every single U.S. state. Uh, currently I'm up to 13. Uh, the problem is I keep going back to California because I have a bit of a love affair with it. Uh, I just love the, the pretentiousness of, of Southern California and the laid backness of Northern California. Uh, but I've got a big trip planned for next year. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to take, which I hope will double the number of states that I've visited at least. Right. I'm sure you'll get a couple more books out of that as well. Oh, great book material. Definitely. Excellent. So the big one, um, greatest sitcom ever made? Oh, look, there was only one answer to this. 
and that was 40 towers oh, oh yes. so, yeah I, I must have seen every episode multiple times and, and in, in my mind no matter what else he acts in john please will always be the middle-aged overbearing hotel manager yes. yeah uh, and, uh, and last year as part of the wonderful melbourne comedy festival my family and i attended an act called the faulty towers experience Oh, wow. uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that or been to it, but essentially the audience becomes diners in the Forty Towers oh. dining room. <laughs> and uh, and the, the actors play the part of Manuel and, and, and Sybil and, and Basil, and they play through all of the various funniest scenes in all of the Forty Towers episodes. Uh, so, uh, you know, Manuel threw bread rolls at my wife. Uh, he, he berated my daughter for not eating properly. Sybil <laughs> hit Basil over the head with a tea tray. You know, they chased, they chased Manuel around the room after the rat. It was uh, just fantastic. Strongly recommended if anyone gets to go to that. Oh, yeah, sounds great. Well, just on, on that one, before we move on to the next question, Jamie has a bit of a beef with John Cleese technically at the moment. <laughs> I'll let him tell you a little bit about that. Uh, well, uh, about five years ago, I wrote I wrote the screenplay for um, what is my now book um, about the Great Emu War of 1932, but the film itself fell through and never got made. But now John Cleese and Rob Schneider are making a movie on the Great Emu War. <laughs> oh, okay. You didn't have rights to it or anything? No, no, I, I didn't. I didn't. But um, <laughs> it was the first thing I'd ever written. So, <laughs> oh, disaster. I've released the book version and I got rights to that. So, <laughs> okay, I can't copy it word for word then. Yeah. All right. So, question number four, Simon, is what is your zombie apocalypse plan if you have one? Well, look, in order to answer this question, I actually had to Google zombie apocalypse plan. Uh, and I'm now significantly more educated on this subject than I was last, last week. Uh, apparently, the safest location during a zombie attack would be a prison. So my zombie apocalypse plan would be just to break into a prison, which would confuse all the inmates who are obviously constantly <laughs> going to break out. Yeah. And then they would escape and they'd be eaten by the zombies. And I'll ha I'd have an extremely safe refuge locked inside their prison. Excellent. That's a good one. I mean, we, we've had a lot of people just, you know, give us different kind of answers. But uh, my, my answer particularly is I would just, obviously you're in Australia, so you're familiar with Bunnings, are you? <laughs> am i ever i mean you know someone from the department should be there each day exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh, i love it um so final icebreaker question elon musk calls you up and offers you to test drive his new electric time machine what do you do look uh i absolutely love the irony of jeff bezos inviting william shatner to jet into space for the first time age 90 and uh, I was touched by the fact that, uh, that Jeff Bezos said Star Trek had ins inspired his interest in space travel. And this was his way of paying it back by giving Captain Kirk a real ride into space. So I think if Elon Musk offered me a test drive in his time machine, I'd, I'd have to decline and instead offer the ride to Tom Baker, who, of course, <laughs> played the iconic time traveller Doctor Who uh, and is almost as old as William Shatner. Uh, so Tom Baker would get to actually ride in a time machine. Uh, I think that would be an excellent uh, way of, of dealing with that. That's a noble answer. Yeah, very noble. <laughs> I like that. So um, let's talk about you and, and your books and um, your, how, how you're writing. So what, what was your first experience of being a writer? Uh, so I was 
when I was born in England, I was brought up in the West Country in a place near Bath. Uh, and my first uh, writing engagement ever was, was being a member of the team which produced the school student magazine, which was called Unimaginatively the Grapevine. Um, I, I distinguished myself by eventually being promoted to editor. And then I managed to leave the school before I'd actually produced a single edition. And I got in my car, drove three hours to London and never returned. Um, but uh, I did contribute several articles to uh, to that magazine. And I suppose that was uh, that was my first ever experience of being a writer or being a published writer. Wow. Um, so, um, yeah, what, what led you to publish your first book? Um, so... A couple of years ago, um, well, sorry, a few years ago, in 2014, my father passed away uh, back in England. And among his possessions, I found letters that he had written home from his year spent living in New York in 1948 to nine. Um, and these letters described his incredible life there. He met the Roosevelts. He dined with the Rockefellers. He was interviewed on radio and television, which in, in those days was quite a, a big thing to happen back in the 40s. And I realised that if I put those letters back in the box I'd found them in, nobody would ever read them again. And I felt they were an important uh, historical record of life in the Big Apple in the 1940s. So... I started to transcribe these letters and my father's handwriting was absolutely awful. And he used to scroll up the margin and write upside down on the bottom and everything. Because in those days, of course, when you're sending air letters, it's all about weight. So you try and reduce the number of pages and that sort of thing. Um, and extracts from those letters became my first book, which was called An Englishman in New York, uh, which I published in 2020. And I really only originally published this for family and friends and people who'd known my father. And I was absolutely astounded when copies began to be ordered by people worldwide. Uh, and there was even um, requests uh, from quite eminent institutions in New York who wanted a copy for their libraries as a record of, of an eyewitness account of New York in the 1940s. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah, Brian, you want to take next one? Yeah, sure. So um, obviously that I've just, by the way, just gone and bought both books. So I'm looking forward to sitting back and reading them tonight after even just hearing you oh, talk about it a little bit. Um, so what are you currently working on? Um, so I've, at, following the publication of my father's uh, uh, memoirs, I actually decided that I really enjoyed the self-publishing process. The whole, the whole thing about it, not just the writing, but also all of the uh, formatting and, and marketing and, and just the whole, the whole writing thing, really enjoyed it. Um, so I decided I, I was going to start writing myself. Um, but what should I write about? Well, my wife's uh, from New Zealand originally, and between the two of us, as I mentioned, we visited about 50 countries and we've lived in three. So I thought I could start writing uh, some fun travel stuff about our adventures um sort of a bit of bill bryson sort of style um and uh, i started by writing about a trip that we took back in the 1990s um to a to a country called tonga now tonga's been in the news over the last yeah. week because yeah. of the, the tsunami um that happened there uh, and in fact over the last week i have made a donation to the to the tsunami fund for every copy of of my book that's been sold um, I don't think I could live with myself if, if I hadn't done that. Mm. Um, of course, we're writing about our lives back in the 1990s in the days before the internet, before smartphones, before social media, where if you owned a fax machine, you were pretty modern. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, in 1996, while relocating from London to my wife's family farm in deepest, remotest South Island, New Zealand, um, my wife, who's then my girlfriend, and I spent several weeks traveling around the remote, uh, fairly primitive islands of the kingdom of 
Tonga. And bear in mind that in those days, Tonga didn't even have television. In wow. The okay? The people owned televisions, but all they could watch on them was pre-recorded videos. There was no wow. broadcast TV at all. Mm. Um, so, so the world was very, very different. Um, my, my book, The Coconut Wireless, which was the first, uh, the first book in that series, uh, tells the story of the time we spent in Tonga uh, and a mission that I had to find the Queen of Tonga. Um, my father had uh, exchanged grins with the Queen of Tonga at Queen Elizabeth's coronation back in the 1950s. Mm. And, uh, and I wanted to go and find the Queen of Tonga to, for myself. So, so the book's about a quest to find the Queen of Tonga. Uh, plenty of funny incidents there. Um, one particular funny incident that I'd love to share with you is when we were flying into this tiny little island uh, called Lefuka Island, which has a population of about 2,000. We're on this tiddly, tiny little plane with propellers, and I was seated next to a nun. And, uh, you know, if you've ever seen the Leslie Nielsen airplane movies, you know that every air disaster movie has a nun on board. And and as we're coming in to land at this tiny little gravel airstrip, I can see this man running around on the runway, waving his arms. And I turned to the nun and I said, well, why is that man on the runway waving his arms around? He's going to get killed by the plane. And, uh, and the nun said, oh, no, he's the airport manager. And he <laughs> has to do that. He has to do that before every plane lands to clear the pigs off the runway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> so that's the sort of that's the sort of country that the Tonga was in, in those days and probably still is to a, to a large extent it's uh, things things work very very differently there and there's a lot of a lot of uh, great scenes in, in the coconut wireless which share with people the life life in Tonga then excellent yeah well I've, I've heard a lot of interesting stories about airports I know the one in Sydney um, has they have like an eagle that hangs around the um, airport to make sure the pigeons stay away so that you know they don't get sucked up in the plane. Yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah, and seagulls as well. Apparently, seagulls yeah. are a big problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, so you've, you've made it clear that you are quite the avid traveler. Mm-hmm. Um, any any favorite country of yours? Um, look, my, my number one favorite country to visit in the whole world is New Caledonia. Um, New Caledonia is it's an interesting country. It's only three hours off the coast of Australia, so it's actually closer to Australia than New Zealand. Wow. Um, but so many, so many Australians, uh, people I talk to, barely even know where it is. Um, it is actually uh, politically a part of France, and it's a perfect combination of Pacific Island tropical paradise and Parisian culture. So think... Ladies with perfectly coiffured hair and minuscule dogs poking out of their handbags, walking, <laughs> walking amongst palm trees and golden sanded beaches. And actually, New Caledonia has my favorite restaurant in the entire world in it, which is a restaurant called Marmite Etia Bouchon, which means pot and corkscrew to you and me. Um, but that is, is the most beautiful French restaurant. I've had the most extraordinary food there. And I would actually fly to New Caledonia just to have a meal of that restaurant. Well, if I'm ever in New Caledonia, I'll <laughs> be sure to try it. That's awesome. Uh, strongly, strongly recommended. Although it does help if you can speak French if you are in New Caledonia, because not not many people speak very good English. No. So, oh, so okay. it's French. All I can say is wee oui, wee. Oui. 
<laughs> yeah, well, indeed, which is probably more than the vast majority of Australians who visit New Caledonia can say, because they, of course, come off the cruise ships. Uh, they pour off the cruise ships for about a visit of four hours. They're not even clear which country they're actually in. Um, and they're normally singing good old Collingwood forever or something and downing a few beers and getting back on the ship. So, uh, yeah. so true. Uh, it is, it is. Um, okay, so we, we, we know we've established you're from England and your wife's from New Zealand. So what, what, made, what made you decide, you guys, to decide to move to Australia? So let, let's just step back to the, uh, the time directly after the period related in the coconut wireless. Um, my wife and I flew into, or my girlfriend, she was at the time, and I flew into New Zealand to go and stay on her family farm. And, and we actually ended up living there for about 18 months. Um, and my book, The Scenic Land Radio, is all about the adventures of how a uh, city boy uh, from London adapted to trying to work on a dairy farm in, in remote New Zealand and learning to milk the cows and poisoning the milk and losing the cows in the river and all sorts of other exciting adventures that we had there. Um, but we were in New Zealand for about 18 months and probably during that period, we were never really able to find any sort of meaningful employment. Um, South Island, New Zealand is a stunningly beautiful country, but you can't eat the scenery. Um, so after a, a period, there, we, we moved back to England. And then when we got, uh, when we got married we'd, and had children, um, my wife uh, decided that she wanted to live back nearer to her family. Um, and, uh, and I sort of said, well, you know, I'd, I'd really like to do that, but I don't want to live in New Zealand again because I just don't think I could you know, stomach um, putting up with the employment situation there. Uh, so I started to look at, uh, look at Australia and uh, came over to Australia for a visit. I'd been here before, but only as a tourist. So I came over with the eyes of, a, of an emigrant, um, and we ended up we ended up in Melbourne, which uh, we've been here fourteen years. And I have to say, I, I love Melbourne. Melbourne's the most fantastic city. Yeah, well, congratulations on surviving the being the most locked down city in the world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was that was a little a little bit of a challenge. And you know what? It's kind of weird because we've been locked down, as you say, for two hundred and something days or years or months. I can't remember what it is now, um, but. It, what what we find now, and you may well be finding this in Sydney as well, is that people are almost on a sort of semi-voluntary lockdown now. Yeah, um, yeah. I think a lot, of, a lot of people are quite are quite scared of, of getting COVID. Um, hey, I've had it, and I've had three jabs, so I don't care anymore. I'm Superman. I'm invincible. Yeah, right? yeah. But, uh, but there's a lot of people who are, are sort of behaving the same way as they did in lockdown, and, and I think that's a big problem for, for businesses, especially restaurants and cafes and things, people not going out as much. Um, I understand dancing isn't allowed in nightclubs, which is probably a good thing in my case because, you know, you don't want to see me dance. Um, <laughs> but a lot, of, a lot of people, of course, and especially the businesses, that's, that's pretty hard on them at the moment. Yeah, no, it most certainly is. And look, at the end of the day, it's going to be something we've got to live with. It's going to eventually in 10, 15 years just be like the flu. You know, you go and you have your flu shot and, um, you know, if you get it, you get it. If you, you don't, you don't. And it, it, you can't, you know, what we've been through in the last two years, you can't just, you know, spend, spend every day inside hiding away from it. You're not going to be able to live a good life that way. Yeah, I, I agree. And in fact, yeah. I, I think I read a statistic recently that more people die from the flu than do from COVID now. Yeah. 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 So. I mean, I've had it and it was just a bit, it was a bit rough with the muscle pains and stuff, but I mean, I'm two weeks removed from it today and I'm, you know, just getting back to normal. So, you know, it's, yeah. just, it's not the end of the world. I can understand why people are worried about it, but we've just got to get on and live, live lives, you know? Yeah. 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 Indeed. Yeah. Well, I'm going to segue into a slightly different topic. Um, do you have any tips for anyone who's thinking of writing about their own life experiences or just books in general? 
yeah, absolutely. So um, it's an interesting genre that I write in. Um, some people call it memoir. Um, I, I think the word memoir has connotations of sort of traumatic life events mm-hmm. um, or, you know, people who've had bad upbringings or bad relationships or, or some sort of terrible thing happened in their life. So I, I try and steer a little bit away from the word memoir and instead call what I do fun travel writing. But either way, um, it's about yourself. It's non, non-fiction. You're, you're writing about things that actually happened to you. Um, so that's very different from writing a fictional story about, uh, you know, Harry Potter or monsters or horror or whatever you, you write about uh, or romance. Um, so I, I would say it depends what you want from your book. Um, if you just want to write down some of your life story for the benefit of family and friends, like I thought I did with an Englishman in New York, um, it's very different from producing a commercially successful story that strangers are going to want to read. Um you do, if you want your book to be commercially successful, you've got to invest in it. You've got to pay for a cover designer. You've got to pay for an editor. Um, there's several other things that you would have to invest some money in. Uh, and obviously, when you start selling your book, your book is in the negative uh, from a financial perspective. You could have spent uh, several hundred or even several thousand dollars on it. Um, so, as I said, it depends what you want from your book. If you just want to spit out a book so you can say, yeah, yeah, I published a book and here you are, mm-hmm. mom and dad. Um, then you know that that's something you can do without spending a cent and you, you can publish it on Amazon but the key thing is is to write now that sounds crazy but I've heard of so many people have spent who said they've spent years writing their book well if you spend years writing your book you haven't been writing you've been doing something else yeah because it doesn't doesn't take years to write a book um, I can spit out a 65,000 word book in about uh, two months in a, in a, in a first draft. And I know of several writers who can do it considerably quicker than that. So the key thing is to write. And in the words of the famous author, Jody Picoult, you might not write well every day, but you can always edit a bad page. You can't edit a blank page. Uh, and so that would be my, my top tip is to just get some words down. Even if the words don't look right, just get them down, move on to the next page and keep going until you've written the story that you want to write. Um, and the other thing is, that your story needs to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And once again, that sounds so obvious. But the number of books, memoirs particularly, that I have read, where you have 24 chapters, and chapter one, this happened. Chapter two, this happened. Chapter three, this happened. Mm. And you don't feel that the book is actually going anywhere. So you sort of have to have a starting point. And maybe at the starting point, you have to say, this is where the book's going to end up. And then you spend the next 24 chapters moving gradually towards that end goal. That would be my my top tip for anyone who's thinking about writing their own life experiences. But self-publishing is definitely the way to go. Um, it's very, very hard to get a, get a publishing deal, especially in the, in the memoir genre. You could spend years mm-hmm. doing it. And then once you've done it, you'll probably regret it because you'll have no control over your book. And every book that sells, you'll get paid about three cents. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you self-publish, every book you sell, you can get paid two or three dollars. Much easier. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of great advice there. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on, Simon. Um, do you want to tell us the, our listeners where they can find more about you, buy your books and that stuff? Yeah, by all means. Thank you very much. So I have a website, simonmichaelpryor.com. And uh, if you want to order a signed paperback or uh, if you want to find out more about my books there, there's even some photos uh, on that website that uh, illustrate 
uh, what's happened in the books. Uh, if you want to buy my books, they are available from Amazon. If you just uh, go onto Amazon and type in Simon Michael Pryor, uh, you will find all three of the books that I've published so far. Uh, and you'll also find three anthologies that I've cre- uh, uh, sent stories to as well. Wonderful. Well, next time you got a book out, anytime you want to come back on, let us know. We'd love to have you on. Thank you very much. I do appreciate your time, Jamie. It's been great. Thanks, Simon. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to support Stories the True and the Fictional, you can do so by heading on over to buymeacoffee.com slash S-T-T-A-T-F. That's the acronym for Stories the True and the Fictional there. You can do a one-time donation or sign up for a monthly membership. Whatever you're comfortable with. With your support, we can keep this show up and running and bring you the awesome content we do every week. So if you can, head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash S-T-T-A-T-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on another episode of Stories, the True and the Fictional.